One of my favorite games to play with my students is uh, dueling translations. Uh, it's an activity that where we look at a single Latin passage with two or three published uh, translations of it just to see how different uh, poets and translators handle uh, the difficulties. And I want to play that game with you today with uh, uh, the example of Virgil. I, you know, Virgil presents a lot of problems for translators, uh, as any of you know who've, try, who've tried it. For one thing, a lot of the sentences are very long and periodic and have this very complex, convoluted syntax that it just it doesn't really work in English. It, you know, it just violates all the rules of good writing in English to have these um, run on what are essentially run on sentences in English, but sound gorgeous in Latin, of course. Uh, another problem is the um, the very precise way that Latin has with tenses and aspects, and how do you render that without sounding very uh, kind of clunky and um, over particular, prosaic. The uh, the use of metaphor. I mean, Virgil has this astonishing, even in Latin, <laughs> use of uh, dense metaphor that is just a impossible to translate, and and b just sounds just strange if you do it literally. So. Uh, how do you handle that? Uh, rhetorical figures, chock full of them, gorgeous, beautiful Latin, kind of foreign to English, sounds super fancy and maybe not as uh, elegant as you would like. Uh, another problem, all the patronymics, right? They'll refer to people by the names of their fathers and, and um, or some ancestor. And this is really cryptic if you don't know the mythology. Uh, just proper names in general and proper name-based adjectives. There's all these elliptical mythological narratives, background narratives that you just sort of are assumed to know, and 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 this can make uh, make for a lot of obscurity. Well, I, I want to just discuss a couple passages, two passages that raise some of these problems, and talk really only about three translations. There's lots of translations of the Aeneid, and and there are new ones coming out all the time. Um, but I want to discuss a couple of um, sort of old standbys, popular ones. One by Fitzgerald, another one by. Mandelbaum, and then my personal favorite, which is the prose translation by David West. And this is going to end up being a kind of ad for <laughs> West's translation. I hope you agree uh, about its virtues. I'm sure, you know, it has drawbacks too. They all do. They all have uh, pluses and minuses. Anyway, all right. So here, here's the, uh, I'm going to pick just a, a kind of unremarkable passage from book one of the Aeneid. And this is where, uh, it's one long sentence in which Aeneas decides to go out and explore the Carthaginian coastline where he's washed up and bring back information to his comrades. It goes in Latin, it's like this, At pius Aeneas per noctem plurima volvens, ut primum lux alma datest, ex ire locosque explorare novos. Quas vento a cesserit oras, Qui teneant, min culta videt, hominesne ferraine, quaerere constituit, sociis quexacta refere. Literally, that's uh, but pius Aeneas, at pius Aeneas, per noctem plurima volvens, um, um, sort of turning over a great many things through the night. Ut primum lux alma datest, as soon as um, nourishing light was given. Exire locosque explorare novos. He decided, and the main verb comes later, he decided to go out and um, explore new re- the new region. Um, quas venta cesseret oris, to see what 
um, shores the he had approached on the wind qui tenet who holds them nomen culto we did for he sees that they're un, untilled who holds them homines neferane men or beasts and then finally the main verb quadra constituit and that's what the essence of the periodic style is postponing this crucial information quadra constituit he decided to go out and see and then comma soki e quexacter and to bring back the information to his comrades all right Fitzgerald renders this pretty much keeping the one big sentence he says but the dedicated man Aeneas thoughtful through the restless night made up his mind as kindly daylight came to go out and explore the strange new places to learn what coast the wind had brought him to and who were living there men or wild creatures for wilderness was all he saw and bring report back to his company. Uh, this is okay, I mean, it, but the piling up of appositions and parenthetical clauses set off by commas is, um, is somewhat fatiguing in English. It's just not that easy to keep track. Um, Mandelbaum breaks up the sentence, which I think is an, is an improvement. He says, um, But night long, many cares have held the pious Aeneas, and as soon as gracious daylight is given to him, this is his decision, to go out and explore the foreign country, to learn what shores the wind has brought him to, who lives upon this land, it is untilled, are they wild beasts or men, and then to tell his comrades what he has found. Well, this starts off well. I, I like the idea of breaking up the sentence. It just sounds better. It just is more clear. Um, but it ends with a, a rather confusing double parenthesis that uh, all the dashes you can see if you're looking at the uh, printed text that includes abrupt changes of subject, you know, which are just harder to read. Um, West, by rearranging the syntax into a more natural English pattern, achieves clarity but stays true, I think, to the somewhat rambling um, Virgilian original. And again, this is prose. A lot of people don't like prose translations, but West argues that prose is much more of a natural medium for us, that when nobody reads long narrative poems anymore, that, and that prose can be just as poetic in, in the sort of sense of heightened and, and grand um, as, uh, as poetry. Anyway, okay, here's West. But all that night, dutiful Aeneas was turning many things over in his mind. As soon as life-giving morning came, he decided to go out and explore this new land and bring back to his men a true account of the shores to which the winds had driven him and the beasts and men who lived there, if there were any men, for he saw no signs of cultivation. So, I mean, the faithfulness to the Latin, I think this is very, very faithful to the Latin, and the readability, but he manages to achieve readability, uh, and these are virtues that are very typical of West's translation, um, as is the intelligent word choice. He's very careful about uh, this kind of thing. So night is described by Virgil as Alma. West chooses life-giving, right? Not just kindly or gracious, which is a bit weak. I mean, really, kindly or gracious. Alma, it's, it comes from the verb alo, to nourish. Life-giving, cool. All right. Um, uh, another second passage is a, a difficult one the design of the doors at the temple at Kumai in the beginning of book six. This is a really tough passage. If you've ever read it, you know. And at times in, in Fitzgerald, and it's just almost unintelligible. 
uh, and it's kind of awkward in Mandelbaum too. Uh, but well, let's look at a couple lines and and see how my hero West uh, handles it. Anyway, so the 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 context is that uh, we're talking about these figures on the door of the Temple of Apollo, and the Latin says Minotaurus inest veneris monumenta nefandae hic labor illa domus et inextricabilis error which literally is um, um, the minotaur is there is in it um, the monument of uh, forbidden Venus uh, here is that work that famous work of a house meaning the labyrinth and the inextricable wandering so that whole line is referring to the labyrinth but of course it's not really said anyway here's here's Fitzgerald the minotaur get of unholy lust here too that puzzle of the house of Minos the maze none could untangle yeah I mean Fitzgerald uses a, an obsolete middle English term which is get meaning product um, and he dodges the whole issue of labor completely the uh, ille labor domus he just says the the puzzle of the house of Minos so I, I think that's that is not not terribly satisfactory uh, Mandelbaum says the Minotaur a monument to her polluted passion and here the inextricable labyrinth the house of toil was carved uh, this, I, I think, is an improvement. It's clearer, right? He he says the word labyrinth, so it rings a bell with the English reader. You know what he's talking about. Um, but it is a mistranslation, I think, of ille labor domus. And he says the house of toil, as though the labyrinth were some kind of work colony rather than as um, uh, what it really is, a laboriously made building. It's a, it's a much worked on building, laboriously made. That's what labor means. Um, West does it as follows. Here, too, is the Minotaur, the memorial to a perverted love. And here is its home, built with such great labor, the inextricable labyrinth. All right, so what's great about it is this, it is totally clear uh, what what's being talked about. Um, little things like the inclusion of the word its, and here is its home. Um, it just makes clear the connection between the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, which is implicit in the Latin. I mean, any Latin reader would know that, and most people probably know that anyway, but it's a little gesture towards clarity that, that I think is quite welcome. And and then he says, uh, built with such great labor, which is <laughs> exactly what, it, what the words mean, uh, as opposed to what they seem to say in a literal translation. Well, all right, we could go on all day with this kind of thing, and, and it's great to sort of... Um, uh, you have to have pity on the poor, <laughs> poor translators. They're, they're, it's a very difficult job, and few of us can do better, but uh, I, I would say that um, if you can handle the idea of a prose translation, uh, pr- translation of the Aeneid, um, the West translation is just gorgeous, and I, I recommend it highly to all of you. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, have a great day, and, and tune in again later.